This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon. What's going on, man? Oh, not much, man. I'm doing well. October is uh, a busy month, but a good month. Got some exciting things coming and in mind for Wellhouse, and so uh, it's busy, but the good kind of busy. That's right. You got midterms coming? Uh, Well, I only have one midterm, and so that's not actually uh, what's... Uh, really making busy stuff, but yeah. For those Got of you who three. don't know, I am uh, doing my second master's degree at Truett Seminary. Pretentious. <laughs> it's not pretentious. <laughs> dedication. <laughs> yeah, I've got three midterms. We had a rainy day today, and so I didn't do anything but homework. Well, good for you. Good for you. I do have a midterm on Tuesday. Ah, uh, yeah. I've got one this weekend. Mm. But I'm going to one near Theological Library on Wednesday uh, to get like ahead on a bunch of other stuff. I got you. That's cool. Writing some Wellhouse content. I'm, I think I'm going to do some filming. Oh, nice. Today, so so we're, we're diving into your sermon right now. Yeah. So um, what? talk to us a, a bit about what, a bit more about what happened yeah, so this text is really important for me, I think. Um, so we're looking at Mark chapter 3, and Mark, interesting, interestingly enough, Mark's one of the, the only real gospel where we don't have a true introduction. Um, Matthew and Luke both include birth narratives. Right. And John has the prologue in the beginning, right? right. So like the deep, in-depth theological introduction uh, for who Jesus is, pre-existent, word of God. Uh, so we get an, a, a theological introduction that way. But in Mark, you don't get that. I mean, Mark... He just kind of jumps right in. He He's like the action movie that yeah. as soon as you show up, you're right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And... Mark sets the stage in Mark 1, one, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mm. Right out of the gate, Mark's setting you up that like this is about to be jam-packed because yeah. he's got three major claims in the first sentence. Right. The good news, the gospel. Right. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one the Jews have been waiting for, the anointed one to restore the world, and the Son of God. Mm. Like, just three audacious claims right out of the gate. And Jesus shows up and just, like, starts doing stuff. Yeah. And for Mark specifically... Mark is heavily influenced by this idea of the kingdom of God. Yeah. And the way the kingdom of God is is manifested in Mark is through Jesus' miracles. Right. And Jesus performs four types of miracles in Mark, and they all refer or they all note Jesus' authority over something. 
Mm. So you have healings. So Jesus, these announce Jesus's authority over disease and illness. You have nature miracles. So Jesus's authority over nature creation. You have exorcisms, just Jesus's uh, authority over evil. Right. And then you have resuscitations where he raises someone from the dead. Okay. We want to be careful. They're not resurrections. Mm. Jesus is the only person that's ever resurrected. So what we call makes them the difference? Because Jesus never died again. Ah, okay. All these other people went on to die. So they're just resuscitations like we would do now. Mm. But with medical technology, we resuscitate people. Jesus does it through the power of the spirit. And so Jesus resuscitates people, you know, Lazarus, those kinds of people. Yeah. Yeah. Lazarus. He brings people back to life. So I've been fascinated by this with Mark for a while, because that's a really interesting way to frame the narrative through these four ways of, of Jesus performing miracles. And so in, in Mark chapter three, we have a story of a really cool miracle. So it begins in verse one, again, he entered the synagogue. Now, one thing you got to understand is the synagogue is the place where Jews worship. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, Jesus is a Jewish man. Like he goes to synagogue, but there's a whole lot of things that happen around the synagogue that like, you got to be really careful of. Right. right? Um, And so often, even in Acts, we see people waiting outside the synagogue, right? The synagogue is a popular place in uh, the ancient world. And so in going to the synagogue, and a lot of people, like we would have, uh, you know, Catholics would have not daily mass, but daily confession or daily prayer. Like they would go every day. Uh, Very similar to the synagogue. People, I mean, in Acts, we're told day by day they went to the synagogue or went to the temple. Mm. Um, it's a kind of daily thing for them. So it's not uncommon for people to be going there, which means the synagogue is a pretty like popular place. It's hopping. But as he goes, a man was there who had a withered hand. Now, I don't know what to... Um, I don't really know what to do with... This word here, it's the word is paralyzed in Greek. It's like it, it's a hand that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, there's so many different ways you could go with yeah, that. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. And so, there's no way to really know unless you're there to see it. Right. So, all we know is this man has some kind of hand that doesn't work. Right. It's withered. So, it could be, you know, chicken wing style where it's forced up next to their body. Or it could be just literally limp, paralyzed, or it looks Can't like a normal it. arm, but is unusable. Um, really hard to know. Yeah. Um, I'm going to guess that it's more, it looks impaired. Number one, based on how the narrative goes and knowing ancient culture, anybody that had a normal look about them probably didn't go in the place where beggars were, which is what outside the temple is. So it's probably some visible form deformity that's going on with his hand. And verse two says, they watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath 
so that they might accuse him. So we get another layer into the story of characters. We haven't been told who the they are yet, but I'm going to ruin the story for you if you didn't listen to the sermon. It's the Pharisees. They watched Jesus to see if he would cure the man on the Sabbath. Now, this is really important um, because in our world, we don't really care about Sabbath, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, it is. We should really care more about Sabbath. Um, Sabbath is about rest. It's about rejuvenation. To some extent, I think a really good argument can be made that Sabbath is a time to experience recreation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so where Paul says, um, all things being made new. Right, right, right. I think Sabbath is a way that we can experience that. Um, so I think there are a number of reasons that Sabbath is important. Uh, and we have basically done away with it. Right. I mean, we just don't care about Sabbath. But in the ancient world, it's it really, it's really you, important. You could actually go to jail for not observing Sabbath, right? Well, you could go... A lot of uh, punishments could happen to you for breaking any ritual law. Okay. Um, but, so, Sabbath was this idea that on Sabbath... Which is what day? Uh, so that's been met like messed up in my mind by some of the fundamentalists. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. <laughs> At one point I was told that it was Saturday. And then I heard like a few years later, oh no, it's actually Sunday. So I have no idea. I'm, I'm going to be straight. I have no idea. Okay. So for our, all of our listeners, Sabbath is Saturday. Okay, so it actually is Saturday. It is Saturday. Okay. Part of the confusion is ancient people judged days a little bit different than we do. So we judge them by the time the sun goes up. Mm. They judge it from sundown to sundown. Mm. So a little bit different in that regard. But uh, yes, the Sabbath is Saturday. Sunday is the Lord's Day. Okay. So there's that distinction. But anyways, so apparently it's Saturday. And... The Pharisees see Jesus, and we've already seen him heal a number of people through the Gospel of Mark at this point. Remember, that's Mark's point. And also remember, we're at chapter 3 here of the shortest gospel. And I'm looking for you here, but Mark only has 16 chapters. And the final... Yeah, the final three are dedicated to Jesus' death, crucifixion, and resurrection. So, like, we're a decent way into this. Like, miracles have been happening left and right. Right. And so the Pharisees know that Jesus has the potential to heal people. And so they watch him. They He's already upset the Pharisees a number of times. Mm. And so they watch him. So that for the purpose of that they might accuse him, they want to bring accusations against him. He is messing up the religious system. Now, that's important. That is, that is a very important phrasing here in verse 2. 
in Greek, I'm going to get a little technical here. The word is henna, and it's what we translate so that. But it a henna is a purpose clause. This has happened, or they are doing this for the purpose of. The whole purpose, they're watching Jesus. Almost like, think about a modern-day spy. Okay. Like, they are watching Jesus for the purpose of trying to accuse him. Okay, so it's extremely intentional. Oh, yeah, this is not happenstance. They're not just, like, walking up in the market being like, oh, hey, there's Jesus. Nope. Oh, hey, he's pulling some crap, right? Yeah, like, they are on the lookout. They're on the prowl, intentionally trying to catch him. That's also called stalking. <laughs> <laughs> now it would be, yeah. but... and it. Also, to some extent, even in America, we don't call it that if it's p- from people in positions of power. I mean, fair. Yeah, that's true. And Pharisees are in positions of power. Yeah. So, but they're watching and they want to see if Jesus will heal because Jesus is upsetting the religious system. And I th- the reason I think that's important is because whether we want to call it this or not, America has developed a religious system. Right. You go to church on Sunday. Christians do a certain things, but more more specifically in the South and fundamentalism, this is true. I think when you move into more Protestant liberal or moderate expressions, um, maybe not. This is definitely true in high church expressions. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. there's a religiosity, a, a system of how to conduct yourself and be a Christian. And so that's what they have in the Old Testament or in the ancient world uh, and Jesus doesn't fit the mold. Like, I, I want you to hear that. The Pharisees are the religious folk. Right. And Jesus is doing the things that cut against their grain. Like, don't miss that. Jesus is doing something other than the cultural norm to enact the kingdom of God. Mm. And so I think for me that, that gives me great pause when I think about judging someone or a, a philosophy or an expression of Christianity because Jesus cut against the grain of religiosity. Right. Like we should all remember that. So there is a way to do that that is efficient, correct? But then there's also a way to do that that could be toxic. Yeah, for sure. There, you can, um, if you go about and well, yeah, it's hard hard to say because to some extent Jesus does go about intentionally trying to make waves. I mean, he calls right. them brood of vipers. Right. He's not. He's not. He's not shy about it. Yeah, he's not shy about but it in any way. You can, you can make waves and try to pursue change without being a jerk, right? To some extent, some might say Jesus is a jerk. Some I mean, probably he, he, would. He cords a whip and turns tables in the temple. Yeah, but I guess what I'm trying to say is there is a right way to do it and also remember that he was Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, so I do, I agree with you. There's a right way to go about cutting yeah. against the grain, for sure. Don't Don't go walking up into... Um, some high church gathering where it's a traditional yeah. mass saying like, all y'all got it wrong. Yeah. Like, don't yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Don't do that. 
fair. However, I do want I, I do want to offer a bit of pushback. I, I want to be careful making this distinction that Jesus did things that we can't do. Because Jesus himself says, you will do greater things than I. No, for sure. So um, that's in John, at the end of John's gospel, for anyone who wants to go look that up. But for I, sure. think, I think we, uh, especially in non-charismatic expressions, have used that as a crutch mm-hmm. to not pursue supernatural acts absolutely i completely agree um and so just for any of our listeners i don't fall into that trap yeah jesus himself says you will do greater things than i so but carrying on with this picking up in verse three it says and he said to the man who had the withered hand come forward then he said to them the pharisees is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the sabbath to save life or to kill, but they were silent. I think something that I want everyone to realize, and this is very applicable today, sometimes your silence speaks volumes. Mm. Um, for them, their silence says, I know the dilemma you've put me in, but I'm going to pick the rules over the spirit of the rules. Mm. The rules are put in place. The laws were put in place to house a spirit of the law that said we should love God and do the things of God. They have chosen the law over the spirit of the law and their silence speaks volumes. They're no longer following God in a traditional sense, they're following the law. They're following the method of faith rather than a life to faith. It would be um, kind of like how we say in modern times, like you're going through the motions. Uh, yeah, to some extent. Like it's comparable. It's it's different because it's actual law where you could be punished for it yeah. versus like just a showy faith. Yeah. Well, I think we're even moving out of that. Nobody goes through the motions anymore because we don't live in cultural Christianity. I would say that that's not totally true. Um, because you still get, um, Oh, how do I explain this without sounding like a jerk? Um, you still get these people that, that, follow the steps, they they come to church, they sit in the pew, they tune out, they leave, and maybe they're asked to pray over some food, they pray, whatever, and then go on about their day, right? Like, it's not life change, it's not, it's not, does that make sense? Yeah, I want, I want to be careful with that, though, because is that their fault, or is that their church's no, fault? No, it's the church's fault, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, I don't know that... I don't know that God faults those people in those situations because if they don't know better, um, I don't know that you can really be judged for something you don't know any different. I think what I'm still trying to say, though, is that the, the modern church or the, the issues within said churches um, are perpetuating the idea of going through the motions. Maybe. Uh, semantics. Yeah, more or um, less. But... 
I think for me, it's it's important to note here that their silence speaks volumes. Yeah, we often see them rebuttal Jesus. The fact that they don't even offer a rebuttal is extremely telling. No. That they would let rather let this man suffer because of the rules rather than experience restoration and healing. Mm. We do that. Mm. Not at Wellhouse. American Christianity does that. Yeah. Hey, homeless person, you're kind of dirty and you might stain my pew. Maybe let's get you a chair or let's have a meeting with you outside of the worship service. Hey, prostitute who's probably being trafficked, man, you make some of our older ladies feel really uncomfortable. Can we take you somewhere else? Hey, drunk, you're kind of disrupting what we're doing. Um, We're going to call the law. We do this today in a number of different ways. Because we don't realize, we don't take a step back and realize that we're doing it. But for so many of us, we have pharisaical expressions. Mm. We follow the rules or we do the things and we forget that there's a spirit behind that. Mm. And we no longer are sensitive to the spirit. We just follow the rules. And Jesus is fed up about it. He looked around at them. This is verse five. He looked around at them with anger and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. That is also telling that Jesus has gotten to a point that he is angry with them and yet grieved because of their expression. Mm. We... I think there are a lot of people in a spot where Jesus would be angry and grieved because of the way that they view restoration. Restoration has to happen through a set of steps rather than through a supernatural encounter with God. And if you don't meet the steps, if you don't follow the procedures we have, if you don't go through our program, you've missed it. Mm. Like you didn't check my boxes So I can't affirm you as truly being restored. Jesus is angered and grieved. And he does it anyways. Mm. Verse um, five. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus cut against the grain. Jesus restored people outside of what was common and fit their build. Mm. Don't limit the restoration of God to a box that you made. Yeah. Give God the freedom to restore as he sees fit. I think that is vital to understanding that that the rules and boxes that we've created and we try to trap God in in order for people to receive restoration, those might have been good in premise. Yeah. But what they've done is they've limited 
where we experience restoration because the Pharisees see this happen. They see God at work in the person of Jesus. And verse 6 says, The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They missed the act of God because it didn't fit their box. Mm. Wow. There's a, there's something to that. Um, God works outside of what we know. He works outside of, of what our finite brains can understand of what my brain says is the quote right way to do things or what our expression says, whatever your expression is, right. Says is the right way to do things. God doesn't care about that. No, God does not care about the rules or regulations or limitations or restrictions you have you have attempted to put upon him. Yeah. God works outside of those things. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many times I have seen people be restored outside of the norm. Yeah, and I think, honestly, to some extent, I think some of the most powerful restorations have happened outside of the norm because they wouldn't have been accepted inside the norm. Yeah. When yeah. you really begin to see marginalized or judged or rejected people restored, yeah. that's another level of restoration than the prototypical evangelical. Absolutely. Then the the walking down the aisle, going to the altar, and yeah, absolutely. That, that's not to say that no. that person's restoration is not as important. It's equally as important. But I think it's um, another degree of impactfulness when it happens outside of the rules because- right. We can look at that and go, oh my gosh. Yeah. How often do you see people walk down the aisle and like in the rules and you're like, oh yeah, they're doing the right thing. That's great. But you question the motive. Ah. It's like, there's no questioning the motive here when it doesn't fit your box. Right. That is just the power and work of God. Yeah, that's fair. Wow. The point that I think we're trying to make here is that Christians as a whole need to start following Jesus and stepping outside the box. I think the point that I'm trying to make is don't let your rules weld you into a box so tight that you miss God at work outside of it.